I'm Crystal Claybell. Thank you for being here. I'm going to introduce our speakers going down the row um, and then set up a conversation. Lisa Sedaris is Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University Bloomington, where she also received a PhD in 2000. Professor Sedaris's areas of research include environmental ethics and the environmental humanities and the science-religion interface. Her first book, Environmental Ethics, Ecological Theology, and Natural Selection, critiques the tendency of Christian environmental ethics or ecological theology to misconstrue or ignore Darwinian theory and examines the problems this creates for developing a realistic ethic toward nature and animals. She has also co-edited a book, a volume of interdisciplinary essays on early environmentalist Rachel Carson and her most recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World examines how scientific rhetoric and narratives about wonder actually pit science against religion and encourage a devaluation of the natural world. Michael Coates is professor of organismal biology and anatomy and chair of the Committee on Evolutionary Biology at the University of Chicago. He is also a research associate in geology at the Field Museum of Natural History. Professor Coates holds a PhD from the University of Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK. His research focuses on vertebrate evolution, especially the origins of ray-finned fishes, the ancient relatives of the vast majority of fishes swimming the seas today. He is co-founder and deputy editor of the journal Evolution and Development, and he is on the editorial board of the Journal of Experimental Zoology, Part B, Molecular and Developmental. Robert Scherer is professor of physics and astronomy at Vanderbilt University. He received his PhD in physics from the University of Chicago. His research area is cosmology, encompassing work on dark energy, dark matter, big bang, big bang nucleosynthesis, and the large scale structures of the universe. He is a fellow of the American Physical Society, and among other awards is the recipient of the Klopstag Memorial Award of the American Association of Physics Teachers and the Ohio State University Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching. He is the author of Quantum Mechanics, An Accessible Introduction. He has also published several popular science articles and science fiction short stories. Professor Scherer is a director and co-founder of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Eric Elstein is the first ever poet-in-residence at the Field Museum. He has taught poetry and other subjects through the Poetry Center of Chicago's Hands on Stanzas program, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the University of Chicago, and the Better Boys Foundation. His poetry reviews and interviews have been published in such journals as the Notre Dame Review, McSweeney's, American Letters and Commentary, among others. His book, here in Premonition was published in 2006. His most recent book, This Thin Memory, Aha, was published by Verge Books. Additionally, Eric is the editor of the online poetry press Beard of Bees. He received his PhD in poetry and science from the University of Chicago. Now I have asked the speakers to prepare about a five minute um, presentation each on the question, what is wonder? 
What role do you see it playing in science? And so that is where we will start and we will begin with Lisa and move toward Eric. Um, is it possible to maybe dim the lights just a tiny bit so we can see these slides? Let me just see how it So as someone who works in um, sort, of, sort of normative, ethical thought, when I think about wonder, I think about how wonder often does function as opposed to how it ought to function. And so asking how wonder ought to function implies another question, to what end? Or what is wonder good for? There's often an assumption in a lot of discussion in science and religion that wonder is sort of self-evidently good. It's something we want our children to develop. It's something that makes us happy. So when I hear people promoting wonder, often in popular science writing, but also in the kinds of religious environmentalism that are the focus of my work, I always want to ask, wonder at what? And it's surprising how seldom this very basic question is asked, wonder at what? So I'll give one example from a research project that interests me at the moment, and that is technologies um, to bring extinct species back, or de-extinction technologies. De-extinction explores gene editing and related technologies to bring animals back from extinction. It's often referred to as resurrection biology, and as you can imagine, it's a sort of TED Talk-ready enterprise. Lots of excitement in TED Talks about it. So one doesn't get very far into defenses of this technology before running smack into wonder. And it's often wonder in a kind of spurious form. So in a punchy little essay um, called What If Extinction Is Not Forever, two scholars argue for what they call the coolness of de-extinction. So they enumerate the various arguments in favor of de-extinction, saving the best for last. They write, the last benefit of de-extinction might be called wonder, or more colloquially, coolness. This may be the biggest attraction, they say, and possibly the biggest benefit of de-extinction. For it would surely be very cool to see a living holy mammoth. And while this is rarely viewed as a substantial benefit, much of what we do as individuals, even many aspects of science, we do because it's cool. So that's the argument from coolness. <laughs> um, and actually, there's a, a volume that came out recently called Resurrecting Extinct Species, where the editors actually spend quite a bit of time in a very serious discussion of the argument from coolness. So, so this is, I think, a case of wonder gone awry. <laughs> um, aside from the dubious alignment of wonder with coolness, this quote also suggests the danger of treating wonder as self-evidently good. For if wonder is valuable, always and everywhere, then there needs to be no kind of obstacles to its production, and thus no reasons for restraint and deep reflection on the kinds of wondrous things that humans discover or create. As if to underscore this point, the authors conclude their essay with this line, de-extinction is a particularly intriguing application of our increasing control over life. We think it'll happen. But of course, the question is not, certainly if you're an ethicist, can or will de-extinction happen? But should it happen? Or why should it happen? Wonder is coolness does not concern itself with this question. Or we might say it simply collapses the can and the should 
into one. It does not ask, or it not, does not ask deeply enough, wonder at what? Asking this question, wonder at what, would reveal that the wonder endorsed here, and this is one of the arguments in my book, is often to a large extent a celebration of human powers of creativity and the products of those powers. It has very little bearing on matters of restoring or conserving some value in nature that's been lost or destroyed. And in fact, if it's the case that only species and not individuals go extinct, then it's also the case on the contrary that only individuals, not species, can be de-extincted. I won't go into that here, but I think there's a kind of logical impossibility to de-extinction. So instead, the wonder that's involved in this kind of endeavor is actually an expression of excitement, and the excitement itself becomes a reason for pursuing the research. One of my favorite slides. <laughs> so like a dog chasing its own tail, science that takes its own pursuits and its own end products as objects of wondrous fascination is often powerless to stop and evaluate its activities. I refer to this as serial wonder in my book. It has a sort of addictive quality to it. So it's owing to these kinds of misuses of wonder that I prefer to think of wonder as something like a habitual orientation on the world, a cultivated mode of receptivity oriented towards something external to or beyond the human and its interests. So wonder then is oriented to something that is truly other. And I think the, the quote that Michael read sort of gets at some of that from my book. The philosopher R.W. Hepburn described wonder as a counterpoint to possessive and utilitarian impulses. As such, it fosters, in Hepburn's words, a concern not to blunder into damaging manipulation of the other. Rachel Carson, in similar terms, in a sense of wonder, says that wonder can temper our destructive tendencies. As an enduring disposition, sort of ideally um, instilled in childhood, through sensory engagement with the natural world. An enduring disposition rather than a fleeting response, wonder can act, she writes, as an unfailing antidote against the boredom and the disenchantment of later years, the sterile preoccupation with things that are artificial, and the alienation from the sources of our strength. Wonder properly grounded does not have its head turned so easily by the latest tricks in gene editing or whatever the latest technology is. Genuine wonder abides. That's, that's my statement. <laughs> so we started off again responding to the prompts provided to us. That was our homework. Let's crack on with it. So what is wonder? So first I turn to the trusty Chambers Dictionary, not Webster's, I point out. Incidentally, Chambers was the anonymous author of uh, The Vestiges of Creation, a massive selling pot boiler that prefigured Darwin's uh, now rather more famous volume. Um, however, in Chambers' dictionary, uh, wonder is defined as the state of mind produced by something new, unexpected, extraordinary, evoking admiration, the quality of being strange, unexpected, astonished, an admirable thing, to be amazed, or, and I think this is important, to speculate, to feel doubt, to ask oneself. Um, and it's derived 
sort of digging around a little deeper uh, from wonder, spelt somewhat more phonetically, uh, the Old English, to marvel. Uh, again, it's referring to something of unknown origin. So what role do I see wonder playing in science? Um, and I think that role is fundamental. And it's not just about coolness. I think that's a, a legitimate dig in some mm -hmm. ways. Uh, we all get excited about material. The biographer of science, Richard Holmes, named probably his best-known book, The Age of Wonder. This book captures the second scientific revolution that swept through Britain in particular at the end of the 18th century, um, providing a new vision, often called romantic science. And it still affects our view of science today. This movement grew out of 18th century rationalism, transformed by bringing a new imaginative intensity, it's imaginative intensity and excitement, again, these, these words coming up with wonder, to scientific work. The breakthroughs in astronomy and chemistry, and we have characters like Herschel, and uh, in fact both Herschels, I should point out, and Davy, etc., and the breakdown of monopoly of the, the Royal Society in London, and it's the springing up, the emergence of new scientific and philosophical societies across the UK, one of the most famous being the, uh, the, the Lunar Club in Birmingham, etc. And from that we get people like um, Erasmus Darwin, Darwin's grandfather, who wrote screeds of poetry on the sex life of plants and so forth. Um, but... It's out of this 18th century revolution that we get really the, the cliched vision of the scientist as the solitary genius alone in his lab, with his Jacob's ladder, you know, bringing down lightning to, it lives, it lives, as his patched together monster rises from the bench. Um, I mean, this is very much the influence of and legacy of Mary Shelley, Coleridge, and co. And Aspects of this which excited people at the time were ballooning. There's a great deal of excitement about ballooning and the new perspective these approaches bring. So I've got ballooning, exploring, experimenting because of Joseph Banks and so forth. And of course we can tie this up with, yeah, it was all, you know, backed up by the, the, the drive for empire building, colonialism, etc. So yes, I'm not denying the importance of thinking about the... Uh, questions and challenges to be addressed to how and why, what the motives were for doing this, nevertheless. Um, Holmes states at the end of this, uh, and this is second-hand, this is complete charlatanism from myself, you know, I am not a classicist by any means. But he argues that Plato makes the argument that the notion of wonder was central to all philosophical thought. In wonder it begins and ends but the first wonder is the offspring of ignorance. Now, I'd like to argue against that because in my experience, wonder is often the realization of ignorance. Um, the revelation that our certainties are inadequate, are wrong. Some new, unexpected, extraordinary thing changes our perspective. It changes our worldview. Uh, we approach an unanticipated cliff edge and the realisation that existing knowledge is insufficient. And this might be prompted by a new tool, a new technique, or indeed a new vantage point. So what role, again, is wonder in science? Wonder is often linked to uncertainty, and as scientists, we should be prepared to live with uncertainty and be prepared for upsets. In fact, we should be searching for them. 
A well-calibrated upset usually generates a high-profile paper, but bear in mind this well-calibrated bit. Now, the 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead noted, the universe is vast. Nothing is more curious than the self-satisfied dogmatism with which mankind cherishes its existing modes of knowledge, scientists and skeptics included. Advance in detail is admitted, fundamental novelty is often barred, and dogmatic common sense is the death of philosophic adventure. And then finishes again with the universe is vast, which reminded me of Douglas Adams, <laughs> who put it this way, space is big. Really big. You wouldn't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you might think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. All this, something I learnt just last Thursday at our regular Evmorph seminars. The Burlington limestone, which is about 340 million years old, is actually, and here's your new word for the evening, an encrinite. An encrinite. That's a limestone that's composed of more than 50% of the debris, in this case, dead crinoids. Now, crinoids are those amazing stalked relatives of starfish and sea urchins that live at weird depths and wave their hideous prehensile tentacles to capture. I can see someone who knows far better about crinoids than me in the audience. But anyway, there they are. Okay. Now, the point is, the minimal estimates of the extent of the Burlington limestone is that its average thickness is around 5 to 10 metres and it covers more than 500 square kilometres. In places it's estimated in fact to be somewhere 40 to 50 metres thick. Now an estimate is that one cubic metre of this limestone contains the remains of about 15,000 individual crinoids. Now if you scale that up, the existing limestone consists of as many as 10 to the 15 crinoids, which is a vast number. You know, billions of billions of crinoids, and uh, wait for an astronomer to say, you know, is that how does that compare to stars in the sky and so forth? Now that number is staggering, and to me that evokes wonder. But if in that 340 million year old limestone I found a fossil rabbit's tooth, I would be even more astonished. <laughs> that rabbit's tooth would be a thing of wonder. And that's my point. It depends on perspective, and it also depends on not being wonder born of ignorance, but born of research that leads to our understanding of the age of the rock, of what a crinoid is, about fossilization, and indeed the identification of the rabbit's tooth. But as a scientist, this wonder demands explanation. Clearly, there's stuff I don't know, and I didn't know that I didn't know in the first place before the discovery of that tooth. And this is the reflective turn inherent in the meaning of wonder. So the questions at the end of this is, how can I find out and what have we got wrong? And I think scientists, we've got to keep that at the forefront of our minds all the time. That's the end of my bit. <laughs> Okay, now, um, can you hear me? Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to start off with a, a slightly quirky personal story, if I may, um, about the life of a, of a the, the uh, life as a child of a scientist. Um, I grew up in the city of St. Louis, Missouri, 
And when I was seven years old, and this was back in 1966, so now you can figure out how old I am now, um, my parents took my younger brother and me on our very first cross-country vacation. Um, we piled into our Rambler, and some of you know what that means, and we drove across the country to an exciting and exotic and mysterious destination. Yes, we went to Chicago. <laughs> and we visited the Shedd Aquarium, and we visited the Field Museum, which I thought was okay. Um, <laughs> but the place that really captured my imagination, the place that I thought was the most wonderful place that I had ever seen, was a few blocks east of here, uh, the Museum of Science and Industry. So how many, of you have, how many of you have never been to the Museum of Science and Industry? You've never been, you should go right now. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's closed right now, but you should go tomorrow, please. Now, not much, sadly, remains of the museum as it was back in 1966. Um, there was, of course, the famous walk-through heart, which has been disassembled and sold off. Uh, the wonderful world of hardwoods, with a gigantic Paul Bunyan who stared at you through a window. Um, AT&T had a telephone exhibit where you could actually talk on a screen and see someone else in another city. Philadelphia, I think it was, so who knew? And that was just amazing. Uh, and my favorite exhibit was, called, uh, was sponsored by the Atomic Energy Commission um, called Adamsville, USA. It turns out it was only there for the few months that we visited, strangely enough. It allowed you to use a remote-controlled manipulator just like the plutonium scientist, except without the plutonium. Um, you could turn a dial on a, and create your own little model of the atom, uh, or you could go uranium prospecting on a plastic push-button map and see where the, in the world was uranium. But every trip comes to an end and we return to St. Louis, and every year after that I begged my parents to go back to Chicago. And every year, we went camping. Um, my family was a camping family, and I was not a happy camper. Um, until finally, when I was 12 years old, we were camping up on the peninsula in Wisconsin. And on the way back, we drove through Chicago, and we stopped at the Museum of Science and Industry. And I, I enjoyed it. It was certainly fun. But it wasn't quite as wonderful as I remembered it at the age of seven. And then 12 years later, in the 1980s, I found myself working on my PhD here because, as you know, anyone who's anyone passes through the University of Chicago eventually. Um, and I actually lived on 50, 57th Street by the track, so I was only about a 10-minute walk from the Museum of Science, and I think I went there maybe two or three times in my entire graduate career, which I suppose is kind of sad. So what happened? Well, I think wonder is most of all the way we see the world as a child. If you want to know what wonder is, remember what life was like when you were seven. Um, when you're a child, everything in the world is mysterious, but it's also potentially delightful, and that produces a sense of wonder. Now, of course, the flip side of that is that um, everything in the world is also mysterious and potentially horrible, which produces <laughs> a feeling of terror, and children, I think, in equal measure, experience both wonder and terror. Um, and as we age, we naturally tend, I think, to lose both of these. The world is both less wonderful and less terrifying than we thought when we were children. But what role does that play in science? Well, speaking from personal experience, I think a sense of wonder is what grabs many of us scientists when we're children and sets us on our scientific career. Now, I could tell you that my visit to Chicago at the age of seven is what set me on the path to becoming a scientist. That's not entirely true. It's, it's somewhat true. But I, I was very interested in science as a child anyway. And every time I learned something new about atoms or planets, I was just completely entranced. So I was sort of primed already to be completely blown away by the museum. Um, and sometimes you hear it said that scientists are the people 
who never really lose their childhood sense of wonder. I think that's not, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. Um, I, I, a sense of wonder isn't what has sustained me through a scientific career. I think it's what got me going on one. Sometimes I'll give a public lecture about the first few minutes of the universe or the, you know, the dark matter that holds together galaxies across hundreds of thousands of light years. And afterwards, someone will come afterwards up to me and say, wow, that stuff is really amazing. And I'll have to step back and say, I forgot. It really is amazing. I think what motivates me now in my day-to-day -day research is not wow, it's amazing, but really a sense of curiosity. And I think curiosity is distinct from the sense of wonder. I had a lot of curiosity as a child. You know the curious children, they're the annoying ones. Um, and they're always asking questions, and that has never really left me. I very much want to know how the universe works. Uh, and I'd like some answers pretty soon because I'm getting older, and, and <laughs> they're not always forthcoming. I would say that a sense of wonder is a bit like uh, falling in love with the person you're going to marry. It's very wonderful but it's not what sustains your marriage for 40 or 50 years. And I would compare curiosity, perhaps, to the kind of day-to-day -day love that keeps you going. Um, and I think that's really what sustains many scientists as they seek to unlock the mysteries of the universe. Oh, good evening, everybody. Um, I wanted to begin with children, um, just anecdotally. Uh, one of my first uh, uh, amazing tasks at the Field Museum um, as their poet uh, was to write uh, an epic poem about an exhibit that unfortunately is no longer up called Antarctic Dinosaurs. Um, I was, uh, the way that the uh, exhibit was set up, there's this one corner uh, built um, uh, to create excitement because the moment that you turn that corner, you're confronted with this life-size uh, cryolophosaurus um, uh, in vibrant colors and, and with all the sort of uh, speculations about the, the, what its weird head crest might have been colored like and so forth and so on. Um, so I'm sitting at this corner scribbling away um, uh, at some notes and kids would come around this corner um, and they'd see this cryolophosaurus and say things like, it's big. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a dinosaur. And my favorite was uh, maybe a five-year-old boy turns the corner and says, it's not real. <laughs> and all this is true. And, and what, what struck me was not only the excitement and the wonder of these children, was the fact that their statements were bare factual statements. Um, they weren't wondrous statements, uh, they weren't fictional statements, uh, they were just bare, uh, uh, impossible to argue with fact. So that's children. Um, so uh, another, uh, uh, one of my initial experiences was touring the geology department at the FIO Museum uh, with a wonderful uh, geologist, uh, Jim Holstein. And he took me straight to the asteroids and meteors. Um, and he's showing me these, these large rocks, uh, uh, explaining to me their impossible ages, um, uh, explaining to me uh, uh, the materiality of them, uh, what, uh, what they're made out of. Um, and at one point, he pulls down this box, this uh, uh, acrylic thick box. Um, in my imagination, in my memory, uh, I hear it hissing as he opened it. I know it didn't hiss when he did that, but 
It's too many movies that I've seen. Um, and he pulls out this rock, has me put on latex gloves, and he puts it in my hands. And again, he's telling me how old this thing is, about its inclusion bodies, what it's made out of. Um, and at the end of these descriptions, he says, and by the way, that's a piece of the moon, um, which then brought this look on my face, which he was waiting for, because he pointed at me and he says, that's it. That's what I love, the moment when people connect with the moon. And I was reminded, uh, as a thinking about that moment for me, um, of being able to hold a piece of the moon, uh, about those children yelling these odd statements of fact. And it got me to think about what was wondrous for me about that moment uh, was uh, the f weight of the fact of that moon or that moonness in my hands and that there was that moment of connection. Um, and in thinking about those two uh, experiences in relationship to the questions of this conference, um, it got me to think uh, about the fact that wonder is in some respects a heuristic. It's a, it's a way, and I think this is related to uh, comments that you were making, and that it's, that it's an impetus towards trying to find a solution for something that uh, may be confusing, uh, may seem strange, or uh, something that uh, isn't so confusing. But uh, on either spectrum, uh, wonder is, is an impetus towards trying to find a solution uh, for describing that moment of holding the moon. That's what I wanted to solve, right? And so the field that I'm in, that means writing a poem about it. Um, uh, but for others, for scientists, uh, wonder uh, uh, is a moment of contemplation and trying to find so a solution. Um, the fantastic, sort of epiphantic ending of Darwin's uh, On the Origin of Species, this wonderful series of paragraphs where the famous moment where he talks about, it is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank. Um, and that's a moment of wonder, uh, wondering at the relations uh, between all things um, and uh, again, I feel like there's a sense that wonder um, is a heuristic. Wonder is the beginning of a potential solution. Thank you. <laughs> those, were, those were wonderful um, observations and comments on wonder. Um, I've got a couple of questions to try to put you all in conversation with each other. So um, I will ask uh, these two questions and then um, I will select a first respondent, but you don't have to keep coming back to me um, to reset the conversation. Um, the first is scale. You each said something about scale. Um, so I'm thinking, it's big, right? Or it's the moon and it's far away. Um, the stars and space are very large, but also gene editing is working on something very small, and I'm wondering how um, scale might fit into how we think about wonder and then what we do with it. So scale is the first question. And the second question is about um, the genre that best communicates wonder. So you're all writers of a kind, um, academic and creative, and there are also other ways that wonder is communicated like through facial expressions, um, other kinds of written word. I'm also wedded to the written word, so that's why I'm sort of stuck. But I think, I think there are other ways that this happens as well. Um, and so I'm wondering if 
could talk about scale and genre. Uh, maybe not together. And I will suggest that uh, Mr. Coates go first on scale. Um, I think wonder is independent of scale unless it's change, it's contrast. The ability to see something at a new scale is important. So absolute size or absolute smallness in a sense is irrelevant. It, what's relevant is the, the new scale if, there, if that's part of the surprise. Um, so it may be a new tool that allows you, you know, a new kind of microscope. If I take uh, fossil material out to Argonne National Labs and you know, get stuff blasted with a photon source there in the synchrotron, it's amazing what we can see. You know? And that does still fill me with wonder. That wonder evokes curiosity. Um, so uh, as a simple, straightforward answer, I think scale... It's, again, it's that change which is important here. Um, yeah, scale comes into it quite a bit, um, and probably it is more about contrast, as you say, but um, just, you know, when, when people rehearse, recite the kind of dimensions of the universe or the, you know, the you know, geological time, there is something that's kind of inherently wondrous about that. Um, what what interests me is, is thinking about how scientific forms of wonder can or, or can't sort of help us to connect with the natural world. And so while those, those dimensions, those scales are fascinating in their own right, there's a way in which um, you know, the vast majority of us never in any way can really inhabit those scales. I mean, you're talking about sort of your experience of looking through a microscope or you know, uh, some other scientist's experience of you know, thinking about geological time or, you know, something in the universe. But I, you know, most of us don't have that kind of experience and those are sort of scales that we don't habitually occupy. So I think if the goal is to kind of think about how scientific wonder can, um, can have an ethical, you know, implication for how we interact with the natural world, then, then it's important that, that the kinds of wonder that people can experience in their daily lives are, are possible through you know, sensory experience and through kind of everyday experience. And, and of course, one isn't you know, in opposition to the other. You, know, you, we can, you can go from your microscope to going outside into nature. Um, although I think it's interesting, uh, the sort of contrast of, the, of camping versus the museum of science and industry. You know, these two things are just totally, but they shouldn't be totally different, right? I mean, some of what goes on in the Museum of Science and Industry and your camping experience, there should be a connection between them in some I, I just so. liked my flush toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you for that. But, um, so, so I guess I, I am concerned that sometimes when, when those kinds of scales are spoken of in this wondrous way, it's a way of saying that's more wondrous than what you experience in your daily life. You with your everyday kind of sensory encounter, you know, that's a sort of pedestrian kind of wonder, but we've got this thing that's really exciting. And so that's, and I'm not accusing any of you of speaking in these terms, but um, often in the kind of rhetoric that, you know, the, the leading spokesmen for science and wonder often speak in this way, that you haven't really experienced it until you've experienced it as the science, the scientist experience it, experiences it. 
Um, I think actually, certainly it's true that, that very large and very long timescales, very short timescales do evoke a sense of wonder, but I think sometimes it's, if you get too far in that direction, it, it's impossible to kind of comprehend it or even to explain it to people. So if you're, you, you're talking about how big is the galaxy, um, you know, I told people if, if you could travel at the speed of light, it would be like driving from one city to another at about an inch a year on a, on a very slow tractor. But it, it, often it's almost impossible. We talk about things being almost inconceivably large, and I think sometimes our minds really aren't made to comprehend some, a lot of these things directly. And when you express it mathematically, as physicists often do, it loses some of that sense of wonder. It actually hides the wonder rather than, than making it seem more wonderful. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I have nothing else to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to drop it. Oh, no, no. no. Well, you should address the, the question of genre. I mean, yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I thought sure. we were on, on, were you on for genre no, do, you genre? do you want to say something about genre? Yeah, go for it. So, so, of course, I will defend um, the world of science fiction um, <laughs> since I grew up as a fan reading it and, um, and I, I occasionally write it. Uh, it. It's interesting, though, because I had always assumed that all scientists were science fiction fans, and I've sort of quizzed people <laughs> through the years, and I've discovered that about a third of them were and still are avid readers of science fiction. About a third of them despise science fiction. And about a third of them, or maybe closer to half, loved it when they were young and stopped reading it. Hmm. And so people, people often say the golden age of science fiction was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, as I described as my visit to the museum, I think it's true. I'll often hear people my age complain that you don't, you don't get that great sense of wonder anymore from science fiction, but I don't think it's the stuff that's being produced. I think it's the reader that's responsible for that, perhaps. Um, so I think science fiction has often been invoked as the, the, you know, the fiction of the sense of wonder. That, that's, that's the primary purpose of it, is to evoke a sense of wonder. Um, and that's, of course, not always the case, but I think it's central to a lot of, of what gets written as science fiction. I mean, I guess I'd have to say the best way to communicate wonders through poetry. I mean, I don't know what other answer I could give. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I do think, and this, and I apologize, this leaks into uh, uh, what my dissertation was about. Um, but there were moments, my dissertation uh, in large part dealt with um, uh, scientists in the Romantic Age who were confronted often with times when they had this speculative idea for which they had no factual empirical evidence. Um, what I tried to trace at those moments was what happened to their language at those moments, looking at Erasmus Darwin, for example, uh, looking at Lyle, uh, his work, uh, geological work, uh, looking at Charles Darwin, uh, Goethe, uh, who was both poet and scientist. Um, and uh, what I consider happening in that language in those moments of, of often wondrous speculation is that the language needed to bear the weight of the fact that didn't exist. And so the language became very poetic. And in fact, there are moments in Lyle, for example, where the language becomes metrical. And it can be scanned like you can scan a Shakespeare sonnet. Um, and so in some respects, I would say that uh, not necessarily poetry, uh, but, uh, but language that um, attends to notions um, of sound um, and artifice are important uh, in, in terms of capturing a sense of wonder. If you're after a language that's completely transparent, 
um, uh, as in sort of a dry scientific tome, I don't think you're going to be able to capture uh, that that moment, um, uh, which which leaks into emotion um, of of wonder. And. Uh I, I would say that poetry lives on in science in the sense that metaphors, figures of speech we use, they still live on. I mean, nature read in tooth and claw is a classic one when describing you know, the vast indifference of nature in the sense of uh, the brutality of it. And that's straight from uh, Tennyson in Memoriam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about that again when I was thinking about the Burlington limestone I was telling you about because before that, Tennyson goes on about you know, vast screeds of you know, life that have just been wiped out with this apparent indifference to um, all that stuff that we cherish now. We, we concern ourselves, you know, um, biodiversity, um, worrying about extinction. Uh, not that I want to go down the route of resurrecting dead animals. That's a whole further excellent topic to raise. But <laughs> I'm not sure whether this is the right place to do so, although I think you and I might find ourselves agreeing on it. Um, Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to raise that point is that it's, it's not something that was done, it's something that continues to be done uh, and continues. Because that genre, we need to find a way of con- communicating um, our science and our fascination with it, our excitement about it, but also the challenges of it. And it's not only through the written word, obviously it's through videos and things like that, but also the importance of museum displays, the way we present it uh, in various contexts to the public. So at the risk of evoking dinosaurs, etc., one of the most staggering displays I think I've ever seen is if you go to the American Museum of Natural History and there's the Roosevelt Rotunda on the side that faces Central Park and you walk in through the doorway there and suddenly in this fantastic drum-shaped space with a big, huge, uh, you know, vaulted ceiling and rearing up in front of you is this flipping sauropod thing. And my <laughs> colleagues will no doubt correct me and say, that's impossible, it couldn't do that. And frankly, I couldn't give a flying what's it, you know. It just looks spectacular. Yeah. And if you want to go, wow, that's big. <laughs> it's great. And it does, yeah, could they really do that? Seriously? You know, I mean, those are the sort of next questions. But nevertheless, it, it works brilliantly. And I don't want to put too much interpretation between the specimen and the person allow the viewer to find different ways of exploring that. Anyway, that's enough from me. Did you ask another question? So you've each described wonder as a feeling to some extent, um, and that it has some limits, it sort of brings you up short sometimes. And I'm wondering if there's an, a sort of ethical moment or an ethical imperative that follows from that feeling. Um, and if that question is way too specific, then I'm asking about how ethics is related to wonder. You're the Well, I think that if wonder is primarily or sort of only a feeling, then that ethical relationship can be pretty tenuous um, because it, it does tend to be sort of fleeting in that way. Or it could be something, as I described, sort of a kind of excitement that sort of leads one on 
in a way that's kind of heedless of what the consequences might be, because it, it is, you know, an, an interesting, a puzzle, some of the, the ways that the language some of you were using is sort of something to be solved or a mystery that, you know, it sort of inspires in you this desire to, um, to, to resolve that mystery or to solve that puzzle in some way. Um, so that's why, I mean, I, I want to think about wonder as something that's a little more stable, that's, as I said, sort of a way of being in the world, a kind of orientation on the world, where there may be kind of particular, there, there will be, of course, particular instances of, of wonder, you know, that I'm wondering at this particular thing in this moment, but, but what underlies that is a kind of moral relationship to the natural world. And, I mean, to draw on, on Rachel Carson, who I think presents this very well in a kind of metaphor of um, wonder is sort of like the, the soil in which seeds of knowledge are planted so that once one has that kind of orientation of wonder on the world, then when one acquires knowledge about a particular object, that knowledge doesn't eradicate the wonder. The wonder sort of, you know, um, it outlasts, there's a remainder. So the, the explanation of the thing that we're curious about um, then doesn't sort of banish the wonder because the wonder isn't merely at that particular object. It's a sort of way of being in the world. And so the reason that I kind of insist that the wonder be oriented to something beyond ourselves and our self-interest is that there needs to be um, there, there needs to be some kind of hierarchy of value or something so that when we think about whether or not to proceed with a particular technology or a particular kind of inquiry, we have to think about how the pursuit of that particular uh, research or whatever it is um, has bearing on, you know, on the human world and the natural world, that those kinds of considerations, I think, can be preserved by wonder, that wonder is a sort of pause button <laughs> to stop and think about where we're headed when we engage in particular lines of inquiry. So the relationship from wonder to ethics, I think, is actually very complicated, and sometimes it doesn't even work at all, I think. But that's why I think wonder, in, in a sense of like a virtue, is something that can be cultivated. And the more that it's cultivated, uh, the more rewarding it is, and the more one has that kind of inclination to stop and think and pause and think about what's most valuable in the pursuit of knowledge. Um, I, I do think there is a tendency among scientists, uh, including myself, to, to go after the coolness factor. I mean, you really do hear people say, wow, that's really cool, we should do that. Um, and I, I agree that it, it's very important to just take a step back at that point and say, is it, is it wise? Is it <laughs> and it's not, not so much in the realm of, of what I and my colleagues do in pure science, which, uh, despite what happened during the Manhattan Project, usually does not have a lot of... Uh, practical applications, uh, but certainly in more applied sciences, nanotechnology, there's a lot going on that's really cool, and you have to ask if you really want to release self-replicating uh, nanomachines in the environment. Um, it's, it's, it, it's very exciting, and I, I think it's important that we not get carried away as scientists, that we stop and, and do things that are both ethical and not stupid. <laughs> um. I'm, what is called to mind um, uh, in terms of this question of wonder and ethics um, is another description um, of, a, of a tangled bank, this, this from uh, the first voyages of, of Columbus, um, where he describes, and he, Columbus uses the word wonder a lot, 
um, uh, wonder at that which is strange to him, uh, wonder at that which uh, uh, is not like back at home. Um, and he sees this tangle of trees um, and he starts to name someone, well that looks like this particular species that I know uh, from Europe and that looks a little bit like this other species. Um, and he marvels and, and wonders at the, um, uh, at the strangeness of it, the diversity of it. Then his next sentence is, and these indigenous folks seem pretty smart and I think they can be converted pretty quickly to Christianity. Um, and I feel like if he had stuck um, uh, uh, in that moment of wonder, and there's other moments of wonder, um, uh, and had stayed within that form of contemplation, um, and had uh, looked at other things uh, with wonder in the same way, um, uh, those voyages might read quite differently, um, ethically speaking.